Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And I'm Andrew McCarran. And we're going to continue talking sideways about Proverbs of Hell, segueing into Bob Dylan's reference to uh, to William Blake in his song, I Contain Multitudes, which itself is a line from Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. So this is a slightly kind of um, complicated structure toward pointing towards something, which in part is um, Andrew and I having gone to Dylan's concert in which he sang this song in Portchester on Tuesday night. Um, That is the 23rd of November, 2021. And so, you know, and kind of pointing through that into the universe uh, beyond Dylan, inside Dylan. I just wanted to add, for our listeners, that this was your first Bob Dylan concert. Sparrow has seen Bob Dylan, I believe, first in the 1970s on the Rolling Thunder Review. Maybe it was 1976 or 77. Is that correct, Sparrow? Yeah, it must have been 76, I think. And I have seen Bob Dylan at this point about 22 times. Wow. 21 times since um, 2003. Might have been a year earlier, 2002. So, Sam, what? I mean, what so, was yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. your impressions? Jeepers. I, I don't think I can go there quite yet. That's fine. It's... You know, I don't want to get into sort of a kind of a deep digressive thing. I'd prefer if we sort of built up some context before going to talk to the specificities of the experience itself, you know, because I'd like it to weave out of something that we can have in common. OK, that's fine. So this uh, this was Dylan's uh, first tour. I guess we're still in the pandemic, but uh, he, he was not on the road uh, last year because of the, the pandemic. And now apparently he's going to be on a two year world tour for two years. And he's, and he's 80 years old. Yeah, he turned 80 recently, right? I don't remember. Yeah, May 25th, I think. And um, he is um, promoting, performing, um, interestingly, virtually all of um, the songs, or maybe the, the very least two-thirds of the songs, on Rough and Rowdy Ways, which is his most recent studio effort released in 2020. Now, although he did not play um, the song about the assassination of President Kennedy. Oh, yeah, that long 10-minute song. Yeah, th- that was um, that was not in the set list. And he concluded with um, one of my favorite songs off of the 1981 album, Shot of Love. Oh, that song is Every Grain of Sand, which I I don't believe I've ever heard him perform. Or if I did hear him perform it, I couldn't recognize it. Yeah. And one of those uh, less than um, successful or enjoyable Dylan shows from roughly 2007 to 2013, I guess. Oh, really? You think that was his like low point in your experience? Yeah. I mean, his voice just was... uh, Shot. I mean, his voice has a lot of charisma and character always, but it was just um, gravelly and, and it was hard to decipher. The band was always playing very loud. It was in, you know, those gigs were enjoyable, but I wouldn't say necessarily they were pleasing aesthetic experiences. 
excluding um, a few songs here and there. There are always a few gems in every set list, but um, Sparrow. I know, uh, I know I saw him. I, don't, I think it was in that period because I've seen him maybe 12 times, 11 times in since 76. And I've seen him a lot since 2004. And I know there was some point where I saw him where he would sing. He would sing every other syllable. He would accentuate like to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free. It would like drive you insane to listen to. Yeah, he was like mm. a, a carnival barker. He sounded like a yeah. carnival barker. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like, I mean, one of my theories about him is he has an extremely, oh, I've also heard this about him, you know, third hand, that he's really funny in person. You know, that as a person, he's very funny and very intelligent. And I, one of my suspicions about him is a lot of the stuff he does is a private joke, a series of private jokes. Mm -hmm. So do we want to look at I Contain Multitudes and talk yeah. about it and, um, you know, reach for its middle, which is yeah. where we'll find Blake? Well, yes. maybe we could just listen to the first stanza uh, and the refrain, the initial introduction of the refrain. And that sounds great. I want to add, in addition to the reference to William Blake, part of the reason I think we're looking at this song in particular is because Sam and I both felt in subsequent conversation that it was one of the more uh, moving numbers of the night, that there, there was something quite beautiful and resonant about it um, long after the, um, the concert, the 90 minutes came to its end, it continued to um, be with us individually and you know, as a, uh, a dyad. And I would say also, just to just to carry that a little, is that he's taken a, a phrase from Whitman that, you know, is, is part of another structure and is inherently interesting. But he, the way in which he says it and the saying of it and those particular words have, for me since going since being there resonated and sort of have a um an a, a um a livingness an embodiment that i think is nourishing for sure for me you mean you mean you're thinking about yourself and thinking that you also I've contain multiple yeah 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 no no not necessarily in that sense but um the way in which dylan enunciates those words within the musical landscape are mm. evocative of um, the sound of music. Mm. There's also a nod to Whitman beyond the, uh, the phrase and some of the content in the fact that the printed poem posted on the Bob Dylan website includes the Whitmanic ellipses, <laughs> which dominate um, the First version in particular of Song of Myself from what was it, 1855? Oh, sounds right. Uh, okay, shall we, shall we listen to the first two stanzas? Here they no, are. I was saying just first stanza, but I'm okay with going two stanzas. It's a lot to, sure, but go ahead. Tomorrow and yesterday too, the flowers are dying like our things do. Follow me close, I'm going to Bali and Ali. I'll lose my mind if you don't come with me. I fuss with my hair and I fight blood feuds. I can't take multitude. Got a tilt-tail heart, like Mr. Poe. Got skeletons in the walls of people you know. I'll drink to the truth and the things we say. I'll drink to the man that shares your bed. <laughs> I paint landscapes and I paint dudes. I contain multitude <laughs> there are the first two stanzas from i contain multitudes written by bob dylan 
I can I can paint I paint landscapes and I paint nudes. I contain multitudes. That's a great rhyme, I guess. Yeah. I gotta say. Particularly since he is a real painter. He actually paints paintings and has art shows of them. So it's a literal truth. I think there's something very visual about the way he thinks, which is part of the reason he's so compelling. I read somewhere I read some book about him recently and it said that he would compose these songs a lot by looking at collages, making collages maybe, and then and then sort of describing the collages in the songs. Hmm. Like like you can picture Desolation Row being a, a big collage. Definitely. Hmm. I think that's the from this book, Who Is That Man? In Search of the Real Bob Dylan. Oh right, David Dalton. Yeah, that's the last book about Dylan that I read. The one that more or less believes that he's a, kind of a fraud, that he's not a fraud, that he's a constructed personality. Like a like mm. there is the reason Dylan is so mysterious is there's there's no real Bob Dylan. It's just a kind of series of kind of smoke screens thrown up by the guy who has become Bob Dylan, you know, by Robert mm -hmm. Zimmerman. Interesting. See, I think that's a for yeah. me, if I may, just yeah. briefly segue is um, for me, that's a very interesting aspect that I read in this song. Um, mm. You know, do I contradict myself? Then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Mm. This the phrase is Whitman's phrase. Mm. And, you know, for me, that you know, points directly toward Odysseus. Oh. Uh, yeah, and to Otis, to his time in the land of the Cyclops, in, with the Cyclops. Hmm. And the, you know, the, the Homeric allegory of the cave um, that is enacted there. And then, you know, as he's leaving the island, having blinded, the Cyclops, you know, he asks, who are you? And he says, I am Otis. Oh, yeah. And Otis means I am nobody. The, um, the idea of Odysseus as being many-minded, of mm. being facile, of um, reincarnating in any experience, in any situation, you know, mm. that which is appropriate, that which fits, and that which will lead toward his goal, um, you know, which is to return home. And even then, he comes home in disguise. You know, he's like a man of a thousand faces, Odysseus. He can, it, it, can the be reason, anybody. The, the sense of home is, is absent. You know, I'll lose my mind if you don't come with me. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, in that also could be... Saying. That could be a reference to... Uh, when uh, Odysseus ties himself to the mast because the sirens are singing, and uh, and what does the rest of the crew don't they lose their minds? Well, no, they they stuff their ears with wax so they don't hear the sirens. He has ah, himself yes. tied to the mast in a sort of uh, you know orgiastic expression of egotism. Because, you know, so that he can withstand that or so he can absorb that experience. Mm. Yeah, it's but, part of know, the trials he goes through. Um, well, that one is a self-ascribed one, but for sure, yeah. Mm. I'm intrigued by, the, uh, by everything you've said, both of you. It's also um, striking to me, in addition to the pre-modern conception of selfhood as being polytropic, multiple, um, self uh, was... A, I think uh, first appeared as a word concept, what, 12th or 13th century? What, the, the word self? Word self. I know, I've heard things like that my, myself, but I, I wouldn't think it was so late, 12th yeah, I century. I didn't think so either, but there was no um, word for it. The word concept in the West emerged at that, that late. Yeah. Definitely, we should do a session on self. It's a good idea. Yeah. The one thing I was going to point to in terms of the multiple self is uh, and this um, this poem has all the moral complexions that um, you know we, we just see we see the dark patches, um, the ugly parts of a person. Mm. Uh, you, you know, like got skeletons in the walls of people you know. Um, um, I fuss with my hair and I fight blood feuds. 
Uh, th- this reminds me of another poem by Walt Whitman, and that poem is "I'm Crossing Brooklyn Ferry." Oh. In this section that I've always loved, it's always um, spoken to me, and it's um, section six of "Crossing Brooklyn Ferry." It is not upon you alone the dark patches fall. The dark threw its patches down upon me also. The best I had done seemed to me blank and suspicious. My great thoughts, as I supposed them, were they not in reality reality meager? Nor is it you alone who know what it is to be evil. I am he who knew what it was to be evil. I too knitted the old knot of contrariety. Blab, blushed, resented, lied, stole, grudged, had guile, anger, lust, hot wishes I dared not speak was wayward, vain, greedy, shallow, sly, cowardly, malignant, the wolf, the snake, the hog, not wanting in me, the cheating look, the frivolous word, the adulterous wish, not wanting, refusals, hates, postponements, meanness, laziness, none of these wanting. Was one with the rest, the days and haps of the rest, was called by my nighest name, by clear, loud voices of young men, as they saw me approaching or passing, felt their arms in my neck as I stood, Born in the negligent leaning of their flesh against me as I sat. Saw many I loved in the street or ferry boat or public assembly, yet never told them a word. And just this, uh, the Dylan poem is just populated with um, just a moral multiplicity. Confession, mm-hmm. right? What's that? Confession. Yeah, confession. Both, both pieces have a kind of a compulsion to confess. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice... Uh, um, Whitman. It's nice to hear because I have this. I'm a, I, I, I'm a, against Whitman. I hate Whitman, and I, uh, you know, I'm embarrassed about it a little because I do think he's a great poet, but I'm not sure. But um, you know, I just find him very masculine, egotistical. Uh, you know, hubristic. He's always talking about how great he is, and. Uh, you know, to me, like his uh, contemporary is uh, Emily Dickinson, who's kind of the opposite of him, writes these tiny poems that are full of self-doubt and uncertainty that are very tentative and seem to me like the greatest American poems. And then this blowhard Whitman gets all the attention because he's a guy and, you know, he's got a big beard and he's, he's full of certainty about himself. and. Um, do you do you feel that within Dylan's body of work there's a paucity of representation of fragile, reclusive women who write poetry? <laughs> I would. Say, I mean, I think that Dylan's yeah. relationship to women is a little problematic. I mean, I I think it's amazing he's never been kind of called on it. You know. Yeah, you know, you know, um, it's the uh, the virgin or the vamp. It's really one or the other, right? The, the, With the, him. Yeah, the goddess or the um, whore. There's that, that line from um, the song on Tempest. Um, I think it's Scarlet Town. Play it for my flat just, play it for my flat chested junkie whore. Whore? <laughs> yeah, just a lot of uh, very strong language. Um, but I think a lot of women uh, relate to Dylan and because Dylan essentially is talking about himself. And he's being pretty honest and vulnerable, or seems to be, uh, unless the whole thing is a construct like that guy Dalton is saying. But even if it is a construct, it's a construct of vulnerability and of, and of clarity about oneself. Um, and, and I think a lot of women relate to it because, because it, the, the self he's describing is not particularly masculine. It's male and female, I think. Mm. It's like, that's kind of what he's saying. Isn't that what this song is about? I contain multitudes. Well, the the one thing I'd like to say is that as somebody coming to Bob Dylan from a position that's closer to naive than sort of, you know, I I just haven't really paid that much close attention to Dylan. Um, it, It seems like However, for me, it's much easier to deal with, you know, what he's done in this work as opposed to his biography and the Mm. kind of, um, you know, I I don't have as much information with that. And it seems like maybe in terms of our semi-textual facet, you know, we should just stick with the what he did, you know, like looking at that here. You mean with this song in particular? 
Yeah, as opposed to like talking about his uh, biographical speculative, you know, whatever his life is like, you know, that construct, you know, that's his own, you know. But what he's given us, I'm interested in talking about that, you know. It's an interesting way to open a song to say tomorrow, today and tomorrow and yesterday, too. The flowers are dying like all things do, like the beginning of the song is about everything dying. The, the, the beginning of the song is sort of the end of the song, or what you would think would be the end of the song. Yeah, I think from an Odyssean standpoint, I mean, that's certainly something to rage against. Hmm, yeah. I guess Odysseus never dies, right? He, the end of the poem comes, and he just returns to his wife, and he's happy, has a happy ending, but he never dies, I believe. Well, we're told, uh, he's told by Tiresias in Book 11 of the Odyssey that there will be a further journey, right? We talked about this at some point. Kazantzaki's uh, yeah. A Modern Odyssey. Yeah, exactly. And also, Sends him to Antarctica. Kavafi wrote a poem about uh, his journey. And also, huh. Lord Alfred I mean, Tennyson concludes Ulysses. I think, yeah, but I would say, you know, that his journey ends in all of us. You know, his mm. journey ends in all of us. But I think you could also speculate that his journey ends in Bob Dylan and in this song. Right. Mm -hmm. If it ends or it continues, maybe it'd be a better word. Mm -hmm. I don't know. For sure. I mean, this, this song is, I think, a sort of farewell. I mean, that's part of what this album is about, I believe, is uh, Dylan is 79, I guess, when he puts it out. How many more records is he going to put out? He hasn't put out a record of uh, original songs for a number of years and so it is a kind of a, a farewell uh, it seems to me that you know when he says i'll lose my mind if you don't come with me one way to read it is he's speaking to his audience and he's saying you know one of the reasons i'm touring constantly to bring up a little biographical truth about him is that uh, I need you guys. I need you to, to keep me sane, to, 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 to support me in some ways. I mean, I don't, you know, you, the you is always hard to tell what it is in a Dylan song or any song, but I think part of it is all of us. Definitely. And I think when you, you know, when he writes of, uh, I fight blood feuds, yeah. um, you know, and then he rhymes that, you know, I contain multitudes. I think that he speaks for all of us um, mm. uh, yeah. as, a, as a species and as the sort of turn that we've taken toward corporate nation state, um, mm. you know, idiot um, dance, you know, you know, who knows how things are going to go in the next 10 years, 20 and, years. And uh, my thesis about how Dylan is both male and female could be, I mean, this is like politically incorrect, but I'm going to say it anyway, since I started to. The, the whole line is, I fuss with my hair and I fight blood feuds. In other words, I do something that's that's traditionally female and something that's traditionally male. A good eye. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm both. And I think there is a lot of, in Dylan, a lot of uh, what's androgyny. It's part of the reason Todd Haynes, have you ever seen that film, I'm Not There?, Oh, yeah, great film. Really um, striking film. He casts uh, Kate Blanchett as a uh, young Bob Dylan. That's the quintessential uh, electric Bob Dylan. Like, Bob yeah. Dylan's sort of at his height. I thought she'd known that. No pun I mean, I didn't realize it was a woman. Like, I don't pay attention to anything. Like, till after the movie, my friend who I saw the movie with said, wow, Kate Blanchett was amazing. And suddenly it hit me. Oh, my God, that was a woman. Nice. What, what does this mean? I'm going to Bali Nali. Follow me close. I'm going to Bali Nali. I think it's an Irish poem. Yeah, I think it's a poem that um, may have been um, the basis of one of the child ballads. Oh. It has an Irish source. Are those child ballads typically uh, tragic? Many of them are, sure. Yeah. Because it's sort of the whole thing sort of begins with kind of an air of tragedy. And the, and the music is so sentimental and kind of, you know, lulling. You sort of don't notice that the whole first verse is kind of, you know, breaks your heart. Flowers are dying. I lose my mind. Um, I fight blood feuds. You know, it's there's a lot of 
kind of misery and evil in the first, just already. And then from there, he just goes straight to Edgar Allan Poe. But then, you know, I think that might be part of Dylan's sense of humor is to have this like utterly like kind of music in the background that kind of mm. makes you yeah, not disguises the kind of whatever grimness of the lyrics. Mm-hmm. It's a town um, in Northern Ireland. The Irish poet Antoine O. Rifteri, who died in 1835, had a poem titled Mer Ni the last from Bali Nali. Wow, yeah. This is this is what Dylan is sort of famous for, particularly in this century, is stealing lyrics and ideas from like obscure poets. And, and there was one book that was what tales. It was one my favorite record actually of this century is uh, the one that was came came out on September 11th. Um, Love and and Theft, yeah, Love and Theft. came out on September 11th. Love and Theft, and then also Tempest came out um, maybe um, 11 years later on September 11th as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, but Love and Theft is all kind of ripped off of Diary of a Yakuza. That's right. So then then there was, what, another record that was all taken from this guy who's the poet laureate of the Confederacy. What was his, was it, was it Henry Tillerson? Yeah, that sounds right, yeah. Henry Tillerson. So good place to keep going, you guys. Let's, uh, let's get the next two stanzas, is that more or less right, to uh, the second articulation of the refrain, I contain multitudes? Okay. Red Cadillac And a black mustache Rings on my fingers that sparkle and flash. Tell me what's next. What shall we do? Half my soul, baby, belongs to you. Oh, well, I cannot frolic with all the young dudes. I contain a multitude. I'm just like Aunt Frank, like Indiana Jones. And then British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. I go right to the edge. I go right to the edge. I go right where all things lost are made good again. I sing the songs of experience. Like William Blake, I have no apologies to make. Everything's flowing all at the same time. I live on a boulevard of crime. I drive fast cars. And I eat fast foods. I can't take multitudes. In terms of gender, there you have it, right? I'm what do just, you mean? I'm just like Anne Frank. Like Indiana. Yeah, that's a, that's a very weird line. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like Anne Frank, like Indiana Jones. Yeah, they, uh, yeah I mean... Strange bedfellows in a single line, my goodness. One thing I was going to point out relative to his calling out to um, Edgar Allan Poe is that he does a certain amount of sort of name checking. You can sort of feel that he's taking, making these names that are sort of literary artifacts and arranging them sort of in that collage thing you talked about. Mm, Yeah. So I'm just like Dan Frank. In other words, that asymmetrical like was Bob Dylan like Anne Frank really or you know is that multitudinousness he's just trying to say you know I come through all those wires out there that you guys feel connected to like Indiana Jones I'm not sure Bob Dylan necessarily has watched Steven Spielberg's movies probably seen them but he probably doesn't have a visceral connection with him you know, beyond that sort of, I think, Odyssean um, huh. evocation, you know, contained in the refrain, I contain multitudes, Indiana Jones, and, you know, the Rolling Stones and people who, I don't know, are on some kind of journey. Oh. Um, well, everyone is on some kind of journey, I suppose. Everybody, yeah, but 
a real like on the road experience. Well, Anne Frank uh, didn't travel much, you know. <laughs> At least in the period of time that she's famous for, you know. While she's in the diary, she's uh, in one spot. Yeah. Never leaves although, her room. Although in the same way as Dickinson, you know, she contained universes, you know, multitudes, yeah. you know, a, an infinite sensitivity to the vibrations of what are what is and also she was on the journey come to think of it of uh, adolescence of uh, you know sexual maturity she was kind of going from being a a child to being a, a woman in that book so you could say you could argue that that's a kind of journey i mean edgar Allan poe he would say that the perfect poem is is the chronicling of the death of a virgin girl. He said that. A virgin woman, yeah. Like Annabelle Lee? Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah. Like the girl, he, like the cousin he married, who didn't she die of tuberculosis or something? Yeah, she, she died, um, was it consumption? It may have been. I think so. She was like 15 or something when he married her. Virginia something. I want to say, was it Virginia Lee that he turned Sounds into? right. And didn't they live in the Bronx together in that house in Fordham Road? I think so. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I would point out is, you know, relative to Anne Frank, the way in which William Blake comes in, and which I feel sort of like he's just putting a piece of the collage in, you know, I sing songs of experience like William Blake. Well, William Blake also wrote the songs of innocence. And I thought of that know. too, yeah. Right. And lots of other things too, like the Proverbs of Hell. <laughs> Just to correct myself, uh, her name was Virginia Clem. Well, how do you spell that last name? Um, Virginia Clem is spelled, spelled C-L-E-M-M. Okay. Virginia Eliza Clem was um, the cousin and wife. And she died of, of tuberculosis? She died young. Yes, correct. She contracted tuberculosis, growing worse for five years until she died of the disease at the age of 24 in the family's cottage in the Fordham area of the Bronx. You were right. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I've been to that cottage. It's like, you know, bizarrely, like, you know, across from Alexander's on Fordham Road, if I remember correctly, kind of close to where I grew up. But in terms of the William Blake reference, I'm intrigued by the second line of that that verse, that stanza. So sing the songs of experience like William Blake. I have no apologies to make. And that, to me, is evocative of the Proverbs of Hell. Oh, and that, how do you mean? Well, they, just, they contain hmm. um, material that we might feel we have to be shy about or apologize for um, mm -hmm. in terms of our natural instincts and proclivities and thing that uh, resonates with me about the proverb as a as a human document is just the uh, the range uh, to use some Jungian vocabulary those mm -hmm. proverbs are full of the shadow the mm -hmm. shadow self all which we are and all which we pretend we're not are present in the proverbs um, not that he references the proverbs here but it is a I think a, a Blakean insight into the human person and one that prefigures the work of Sigmund Freud. Mm -hmm. Definitely the Proverbs point toward the construction of a human being that is not ridden by guilt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Denial, silence, repression. Mm -hmm. And look, look at the third line of this stanza, very much in line with this emerging reading. Everything's flowing all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Oh, Yeah. yeah. That's a that's a home run. Yeah, that, that line, the third line, all the more mm. it, it one, points one, toward one, the third. real crux of the Heracletian, you know, hmm. oh, yeah, like uh, like yeah, Lucretius, where flows. we started. Yeah, I mean, everything's flowing all at the same time, which is actually, you know, a, a really good translation of what Heraclitus is pointing toward. Mm -hmm. And maybe Buddha. Or, or I made me think of Taoism, really, because the whole idea of going with the flow is really, to me, more like Lao Tzu 
Yeah, that's one thing I did want to say is that as I talked to Andrew about this, I did approach going to the Dylan concert in a similar way in which I would approach going to see a divine master, you know, like mm. a religious, like a somebody or some realized like incarnation, yeah. you know, and also positioned myself, which Andrew assessed, you know, acquiesced to in a way in which I would be able to see him and, you know, would have sort of some visual connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I did feel like I wanted to arrive at that line, you know, actually. Everything's flowing all at the same time. And I, and I felt in some ways through my projection, more than anything else, but who cares, um, you know, that Dylan, as he was singing and everything that I brought to that event, he did for me crystallize as sort of the Aleph, as yep. the Aleph, uh, you know, referencing the Borges short story. Oh, okay. That kind of like, because he was, you know, we were maybe 30 yards, nah, 20 yards away, not okay. very far, about 60 feet. Yeah, we were close. Yeah. But he was still kind of small, you know, and it's a bit dark that he was kind of small. And it was like that little chink in the wall mm. in which there's a light. And if you look at that light, all of the events of the universe are, are present for your, mm -hmm. you know, like some kind of um, portal, you know, mm -hmm. to a multitude of experiences, which I felt, you know, I felt that Bob Dylan does contain multitudes. I think that mm -hmm. his, his life is a uh, record of that. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> or 35 records of that. Olive, I think you pronounce it Olive. But it's funny that uh, uh, to me, I would say this, I'd go so far as to say this is funny to say everything's flowing all at the same time. And then the rhyming line is, I live on the boulevard of crime. <laughs> so it's like, he's not going to let you get off with some new age uh, pablum. You know, he's not going to, he's not going to be too reassuring. He's going to reassure you and then he's going to unreassure you. And then, and then the next line is, I drive fast cars and I eat fast foods. So he's gone from uh, William Blake to McDonald's in one uh, verse. He's not going to, um, you know, it's, it's not, that's the thing. In this book, I'm writing about how much I hate the Beatles. I just feel like the Beatles are infinitely reassuring. From she loves you to across the universe, like every. They never wrote a line that wasn't reassuring. You know, Sparrow, my friend who's a Shakespearean, his name is Saul Isaacson. That's the reason that he doesn't like Walt Whitman. Oh, really? He that feels, he finds him too reassuring? Yeah, he finds that Whitman has no sense of tragedy. There are two yeah. different Whitmans. You know, there's the pre-Civil War Whitman. There's the Whitman of Song of Myself. Right. And then there's the post-Civil War Whitman. It's another register. You know, poets aren't like, a, you, you know, you can't talk about, Whitman's very complicated. You know, you can't um, just make a blanket statement about him. I, I think, yeah. I agree. You know. Well, I mean, what I was trying to say is what I loved that, uh, that piece that uh, Andrew read a little while ago is because it contradicts all my, uh, uh, you know, narrow-minded uh, you know, generalizations about Whitman. Sparrow, I like the two lines that you just um, chuckled over that conclude the stanza you were just looking at. Because it's three things that my mother, pretty much to this day, warns me against. Oh. Living, living in a dangerous neighborhood, <laughs> being safe in automobiles, and staying away from fast food. He's doing all of those things <laughs> as part of his multitudinous self. He's he's uh, kind of uh, and and in the previous uh, verse, I go right to the edge. I go right to the end. So he's he's 
kind of identifying himself. And then before that, he says, I rollick and I frolic with all the young dudes. We've got to point out, I feel, that uh, the word rollick does not exist. <laughs> Rollicking is an adjective, but I don't think rollick is a verb. Oh, so, good point. That's like a funny, I think it's another one of his little inside jokes. Unless, I mean, I guess I have to say this. I mean, I, I feel like it's maybe throwing whatever cold water on Andrew. But uh, I, when I heard this album, I listened to a couple of the songs on YouTube. And I thought, Dylan did not write this. Like, he, he hired somebody to write this. And it just doesn't sound like Dylan to me. And... Uh, uh, and then I, there was a headline in The Onion that said something like, Dylan fires 134 of his writers, like after I had this thought. You know, it's a joke. Yeah. But I mean, I, I'm not sure that Dylan, I, I mean, reading it now, it does seem more like it's Dylan. But I mean, and, and who's to say what is Bob Dylan? You know, if, if maybe all of his songs were written, you know, when he first became famous, like the minute he became famous, Time magazine published an article saying that he stole Blowing in the Wind from this uh, teacher in uh, New Jersey. So he was like, from the beginning, accused of plagiarism. And Jeepers. I don't know if it really Floating matters Downer. if he writes these things. Yeah. Well, Larry Charles, who um, directed or co-directed the movie Masked and Anonymous, oh, uh -huh. which Dylan starred in, in addition to producing and directing, it was released in 2003. A real and incredible cast. Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, Penelope Cruz, Luke Wilson, Jessica Lang is in it. Uh, I like it. I've seen it a few times. But Larry uh, Charles said that um, Dylan's method of songwriting, very much what you were describing earlier, Sparrow, in terms of the collage method, that he had a, um, a box of just lines that he oh, yeah? jot down or that he'd hear and that struck him. Um, in yeah, in this box, these lines, and he would just kind of draw out lines more or less at random and piece, huh. uh, piece together his songs like that. Uh, maybe not every line, but many of the lines. And yeah, I guess it's surrealistic. Uh, I think Andre Breton in the Surrealist Manifesto recommends doing similar, this collage technique. I had a friend who was the assistant to, to uh, Ashbury, John Ashbury, and he said that about Ash Ashbury. As I recall, he said that Ashbury had a bowl. I picture in my mind a silver bowl with these lines that I think that he typed out on a typewriter and then cut out, and he would pull them out at random or Is in some Eugene, method. Eugene Ritchie or no? Eugene Ritchie, yes, right. I, it's I know Eugene Ritchie. In terms of Ashbury, you know, tennis court oath, you know, exemplary within that system. The one thing I would say, though, is that Dylan is nevertheless composing them in that he's arranging them he has lines you know and they're floating around in a box and in his head and then but he's the one who makes these decisions right even if somebody else writes them he's the no, one that and, like brings them the guy brings it to dylan and says no nah, this is no good you know <laughs> so he's making that decision right uh-huh so he is, you like, you know, the imprimatur of what he's done. You know, he's made these. He's, he's not doing it through random uh, operations and things like that. Is all I was saying. And also, they rhyme. So you know, it could be that he pulls out of the uh, box. You know, uh, got a telltale heart like Mr. Poe, and then he's it's got to he's got to think of another line to go with that. I mean, well, maybe be... he keeps them arranged. Uh, you know, by rhyme, by rhyme ending. Yeah, maybe. It's and then impossible. he goes randomly through. I mean, that's a, that might work. I mean, they feel a little bit like that. I mean, but it, it's the, the rhyme scheme does remind me a little bit of Poe. When, when, when one of us was bringing up before Poe's poetry, even though Dylan's not talking about Poe's poetry, but there is some similarity, I think, to the rhyme schemes of Poe. Because his poem's kind of obsessively rhyme, it seems to me. Well, should we hear it a little more? Uh, yeah, for sure, yeah. Yeah, the rhyming couplet. It's a powerful engine. Okay. Yeah, that's true. It is couplets. Great blue jeans All the pretty maids And all the old queens 
all the old queens from all my past lives. I carry four pistols and two lives. <laughs> I'm a man of contradictions. I'm a man of many moods. I contain multitudes. You greedy old wolf, I show you my heart. But not all of it, all of the hateful parts. I sell you down the river, I put a price on your head. What more can I tell you? I sleep with life and death in the same bed. Get lost, madam. Get up off my knee. Keep your mouth away from me. I'll keep the path open. The path in my mind. There's no love left behind. I play Beethoven's sonatas. Chopin's prelude. <laughs> I contain multitudes. And that's it. That's the song. What are red blue jeans? I guess there's really no answer to that. I guess blue jeans means what I called as a kid dungarees. Like red, uh, what do you, what do people call them? Levi's. Yeah, it's red. a good look. Yeah, but kind of a showy look. All the pretty maids and all the old queens. The old queens. I wonder. I think of like the old uh, drag queens. Yeah, I mean, I, that's what comes to my mind. Although I suppose you know Queen Jane, approximately, it sounds a little bit like he's writing about or thinking about all the characters and all his old songs and. You know, kind of thinking about his whole life, he's just a guy who's written hundreds of songs with thousands of characters and back, you know, at himself and thinking like, wow, I really did it. <laughs> then there's that somewhat menacing line, the fourth line, I carry four pistols and two large knives. Yeah. And it reminds me, some guy I knew ran a gun store on Route 28, like near Woodstock. And he sold Dylan a gun. And then my friend, uh, Gerd Stern, he had some crazy story about being at a party with Dylan, where Dylan is like, takes out a gun and he's like, threatening to shoot people, sort of jokingly. I mean, it's kind of like literal. I think Dylan maybe actually carried four pistols and two large knives. Probably doesn't, nobody carries four pistols. That's, that's kind of a, what's the word? Cartoonish image, right? Well, the one thing I would say is that it, you know, points toward your insightful reading, Andrew, of, you know, that passage from Whitman. Especially since the figure of the wolf is um, mm. present in what I read. Oh, Just yeah. Off- and the way the way Whitman um, mentions all these animals, very much like the uh, Blake uh, Proverbs that we're reading. Oh, right. We had that. Uh, right. It's the first animal in the epic catalog of, of animals. Mentioned in section six of Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. The wolf, the snake, the hog, not wanting in me, the cheating look, the frivolous word, the adulterous wish, not wanting. But the greedy old wolf, is that a reference to who he's showing his heart to, or is that a self-referential reference? Greedy old wolf, I'll show you my heart. I don't know. It's ambiguous. The grammar there is ambiguous. The semantics. But not all of it. Only the hateful part. I'm sure that um, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry is a poetic echo here. Oh, yeah? I just hmm. feel that I may be wrong. I see what you're saying. Greedy Old Wolf is in this song, yeah. I mean, I like to think of these, uh, that he's talking to the audience. And to me, the Greedy Old Wolf is us, the audience that endlessly wants more wisdom and songs from Dylan. We're the Greedy Old Wolf. And he's showing us our his heart. Hmm. You know, but not all of it, just the hateful part, you know, because that's we just want the the we want the great Dylan songs. I mean, to me, I must say it strikes me as really bizarre that uh, baby boomers go to these concerts and uh, and then Dylan sings this song, this really cruel song attacking Edie Sedgwick, like a just a bitter, horrible song. Uh, you know, uh, like a Rolling Stone, and everybody gleefully sings along, so delighted to hear this great classic, you know? 
And it's like, uh, I'll show you my heart, but not all of it, only the hateful part. And that, you know, to me, that's the, the, the great songs of Dylan are his hateful song. Like Positively, Fourth Street. Like yeah, I mean, that's not such a classic, but Just Like a Woman, I think, is a, is a really cruel song. Also probably for Edie Sedgwick. That ballad in, ballad in Plain D. Oh, yeah. Which is about Susie Rotolo's sister, which is full of vitriol. You know what I'm trying another Whitmonic um, echo? I'll sell you down the river, which is, I think, an unambiguous um, reference to slavery. Yeah. Um, and the fact that the Whitmonic voice, according to this one scholar of Whitman, I, I wish I could remember his name. He um, wrote this book on Whitman's journals, and he located the moment when the Whitmonic eye emerged in the journals. And it was a moment when Whitman wrote, I am the poet of the slave, and I am the wow. poet of the slave master. I think it's in Song of Myself somewhere. I am wow. the poet of the slave, and I am the poet of the slave master. Whitman thought of himself as the uber-democratic poet who was going to reach every heart and mind and transform the consciousness of the nation through Song of Myself. Um, I'll sell you down the river. I'll put a price on your head. What more can I tell you? I sleep with life and death in the same bed. And I would also point out that in terms of composition, if we want to look at it that way, it does resolve what we may have identified as the central sort of, you know, something in the poem that is the problem, you know, the, <laughs> the Odyssean part. And that had to do with the flowers are dying like all things do, the dying. And then, you know, the resolution, you know, kind of, you know, I sleep with life and death in the same bed, you know, pointing towards sort of like a non-dual state. And then he, he writes further on, um, you know, which comes back to I'll lose my mind if you don't come with me, um, which I want to get back to. I'll have the path open, the path in my mind. You know, that sense of the many-minded, which is connected with that multitudinousness. Mm. I would also, though, like to point out in another lasso toward what Andrew pointed toward in Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, which is the River Styx, mm. which is the river of death. And the crossing yeah. that is all that that's implicit in Whitman's song, you know, this sense of for for Dylan, you know, an Odyssean journey worth taking, you know, is is crossing that river. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he's thinking about death. That seems to me pretty clear. I would say, you know, I, to the extent that you can say anything for certain about a work of songwriting, it seems like that's what it's about. But, of course, he is sleeping with life and death in the same... I mean, I've just been hanging out with my 102-year-old dad, you know, who is kind of... He's kind of on this kind of knife edge between life and death. And, uh, I mean, he's not dying, but, I mean, he's so old that death is kind of a continual presence in a way for him and life is a, is a very strong presence and you know when you're 80 years old writing songs you uh, you're kind of at that point where you're you know you're getting close to death how many more years are you going to be writing songs even if you do live another 25 years well you're certainly not guaranteed anything after that point right yeah and dylan you know smoked for years he didn't leave a lead a terribly healthy life so he doesn't know how long he has left. Interesting how he shoes the madam away in that final scene. I know, yeah, that is so strange, you know. I sleep with life, as if I sleep with life and death in the same bed brings him to the thought of beds, which brings him to the thought of sex, which brings him to the thought of, I'm sick of sex, you know. But that bed. also is an echo to the start and kind of re resolution you know, the part where he says, if you don't come with me, you know, usually you say that to somebody that you want to court or, you know, spend time with, you know, in a romantic way, right? I know. It's pretty contradictory to say, I'll lose my mind if you don't come with me and then get lost, madam, get off my knee. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
unless maybe they're two separate people. It's very unclear. I guess it's a little bit. It's like he says, I'll keep the path open. I think he's a little bit saying, I don't want to get tied down to any one person. I want to keep the path open. I want to go my own way, the way my mind leads me. I'll keep the path open, the path in my mind. Hmm. It could also refer to I contain multitudes. Hmm. In other words, there's a part of me that wants one thing and there's a part that wants that which is opposite. Hmm. And both of them I can contain. You know, do I contradict myself? Then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Well, I mean, it's a very easy way to write a song, to have the, the uh, what's the word, uh, refrain, I contain multitudes, because anything you put in counts as multitudinous. You know, you're not uh, going for uh, consistency. No. I think this line, uh, I play Beethoven's sonatas, Chopin's preludes, I think is really funny. I don't know why. I guess maybe because... I play can mean two different things. I mean, I put them on the record player or CD player, or I actually perform them. And the thought of Dylan like sitting down and playing a Chopin nocturne strikes me as really funny. I don't know why. Struck by this, neither of us are, neither of the, none of the three of us is musicologists, but just out of curiosity, probably be too much on the nose, but. Beethoven's Sonatas and Chopin's Preludes, were these uh, later works? Oh, by both of them? It would be interesting. Right, right. I wish I'd read that book by on late style by Edward Said. I think maybe he invented this concept of the late style, that, uh, that artists have a special, you know, when they get into a later part of their life. I guess maybe the most famous would be Matisse doing those... Uh, cutting out uh, the kind of collages that became the jazz series. I want to circle back, Sparrow, if we may, to your appraisal of the album as a whole. You didn't feel the rough and rowdy ways album itself resonated for you. Am I correct? Well, yeah, I guess it didn't resonate for me. I mean, mostly I just was not sure. It didn't sound like Dylan. It didn't sound consistent with my, you know, I'm a Dylan fanatic for most of my life, uh, and it just didn't sound like Dylan to me. It sounded sort of fraudulent. That was more the feeling I had than that I didn't like it. I I didn't particularly like it. I mean, I didn't hear much of it. I heard two or three songs, but I think this was one of them. I rarely liked the new albums until maybe a year later. Hmm. Uh, for me, but I, I don't know. What you're saying is interesting. I hadn't thought about the fraudulent possibility, or the possibility that they were written by diverse hands. But I mean, that, I, I, I'm not certain about it. It's just that was like how it just struck me. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I just feel like I didn't really need another Dylan album, or anyway, I didn't need this Dylan album. Maybe I was kind of pissed off that, you know, how apolitical Dylan is, and you know, I was kind of shook up by Donald Trump and. You know, I just feel like, you know, Dylan puts out these ambiguous, ambivalent statements and the world needs kind of revolution. Like, I think the last Dylan album that I thought was really great was uh, Infidels, which was kind of his last political album. Um, You know, who's going to take away his license to kill? Uh, I just think, I mean, I really like the whole album, but uh, except maybe for that bizarre defense of Israel. So, Sparrow, what you're saying is that you feel like Dylan should really put out a revolutionary album, and you don't feel that this holds up to that. Yeah, revolutionary or, like, spiritually uplifting. Like, it just feels like he's kind of putzing around to me in this record. Uh He's he's just fooling around. You know, like, like this line about the Rolling Stones, you know... He's just like kind of, I don't know what the word is, playing with us. You know? Yeah, I, like, I agree like, with that. That was a real poor um, choice I thought he made. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it just it just strikes me as kind of arbitrary. And there was a guy I worked with years ago, and he would say, I'm just pulling your ass. 
And uh, instead of I'm pulling your leg, he was a Jamaican guy. I forget his name. And I sort of feel like Dylan's pulling our ass in this record. That's how I feel at this point, you know. I mean, it's interesting to look at this song. I, I do feel maybe it's just the nature of our collective talent for exegesis. But um, I feel that there is a, the more you look at it, the more there is there. And it is kind of altogether kind of an interesting statement. But um, I think I liked better those those uh, Frank Sinatra songs. I liked it when Dylan was doing these ridiculous cover versions of old-fashioned American songbook songs. I just thought it was really funny and kind of absurd. One of which I performed at the at the uh, Capitol Theater. Frank Sinatra's "Melancholy Mood." Really. Because he hasn't been doing them lately, I think. He, he did that one Frank Sinatra cover. How was it? Um, I, thought it was, I thought the whole thing was great. And I, you know, I want to say, Sparrow, I'm intrigued by everything that you just said. Um, I thought um, I had in some ways a similar response when I, I listened to the record, Rough and Rowdy Ways, other than really liking two of the songs. Um, I didn't return to it. But mm -hmm. live, I thought they, they, they took on a new life. I mean, you know, I think, I don't know if we've discussed it on these podcasts, but I think that's certainly true of Dylan and maybe of everybody. But that, that like that last concert that I saw, which also you, Andrew, saw, uh, yeah. or saw, the, you know, the, I thought Dylan's version of Lenny Bruce, oh, which is, I think, a terrible song. I would go so far as to call it a terrible song. Uh, I thought Dylan's performance of it was like deeply affecting and beautiful and transcendent so you know and and i thought to me what he was saying was it doesn't matter what the song is like the the song itself is is irrelevant what matters is your heart when you sing it if you sing it with your heart it's a great song that's how i took it so yeah i'm i'm not at all doubting that these songs could come to life in concert and also dylan likes my sense is Dylan likes singing new songs. He likes singing the songs he just wrote. When you watch thousands of hours of YouTube of his concerts as I have, you notice that. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.